Hello and welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I am your host, Kirk Honda. I'm a professor and a licensed therapist. It's just me today. I thought I would pose a question to you and then I would go on with the podcast. So let me pose a question to you. A couple comes into therapy. So they're married or they're not or something. But a couple comes into therapy for couple counseling. You meet alone with each of them. After the initial meeting where you meet with both of them, you meet alone with each of them. And the wife tells you that she's having an affair and does not want to tell her husband. What do you do? Okay, so just hold on to that question and let me explain. I thought I would talk about a training I went to yesterday titled Secrets, Cybersex, Affairs, Addiction, and Forgiveness. It was put on by Janice Abrams Spring, PhD. She is a board-certified clinical psychologist, and she's a nationally acclaimed expert on issues of trust, intimacy, and forgiveness. She has three popular books that a lot of people rave about. I haven't read them, but I have heard wonderful things from people that I respect, whom I respect. The books are titled After the Affair. The second one is How Can I Forgive You? And the third one is Life with Pop. So again, the, the name of the training was called Secrets, Cybersex, Affairs, Addiction, and Forgiveness. As I like to do for the podcast sometimes, I will go to a movie or a training or something and I will just take a bunch of notes and then I sit down in front of the microphone and just read through my notes and see what comes out of my mouth. So Dr. Spring talked about the definition of an affair. She said that decades ago, an affair was very narrowly defined and perhaps more easily defined as heterosexual intercourse with someone other than your partner without telling your partner. But then she went on to say that because of the internet, there is a new definition of infidelity. She said she claims that the current definition of infidelity now includes same-sex or unmarried couples. So again, originally infidelity might only be defined as if you were married and you had intercourse with someone outside of that marriage, but now it applies the word infidelity applies to a couple say that isn't married and one of the partners has a sexual encounter with someone outside of that couple and it also of course applies to same sex couples i might extend that to even include sex that is not discussed prior in a polyamorous couple and the new definition of infidelity has to include things that happen on the internet, which of course didn't exist a number of decades ago. Also, she said that for many people, infidelity is defined by the couple. If one couple, say, thinks that looking at porn is infidelity, then that's what infidelity is. And to another couple, if they say that that isn't infidelity, then that isn't what infidelity is. But she says at the core of the definition is about having secrets and a violation of trust, that infidelity at its core involves keeping secrets from your partner and violating their trust. She talked about various different ways that people can violate other people's trust, like chatting with someone in a sexual way or fantasizing in a way that your partner doesn't want you to. By the way, regarding fantasizing, She seemed to have the attitude that couples should allow their partners to fantasize about whatever they want to. 
she was cl- she made it clear that fantasizing is very different from actually doing something and that fantasies are healthy and that without fantasies people might be prone to actually act out in a way that is against what the partner wants she she seemed to think that fantasies will provide variety to individuals in a way that is somewhat functional or more functional than than cheating she seemed to think that human beings need variety and since couples are sometimes together for 50 years fantasizing is a appropriate way to get that variety but she was also careful not to say that one behavior was okay and another behavior wasn't she made it clear that she didn't want that to be communicated to us Um, she seemed to think that couples are free to define that for themselves but at the same time it seemed like she might provide some perspective to clients around what is normal or what can be acceptable and how to understand your partner's needs and proclivities. At the very beginning, she had sort of a disclaimer where she talked about gender, and she said that she didn't like to stereotype men and women, and that men and women are perhaps more alike than people like to make out. Um, And I think throughout the training, she upheld that credo. But at times, I I have to say, there, there were times when it the training bothered me. For instance, she said that men prefer porn, whereas women prefer erotic chats and other interpersonal exchanges. So my thoughts on this are, yes, that is certainly the stereotype. And according to data, you could say that on average, men are more likely to watch porn than women. But to say that men like this and women like that, I think portrays this idea that women don't like porn and men don't like erotic chats and other interpersonal exchanges. As you might tell from previous podcasts, I'm very careful about stereotypes and and I'm very careful about how we as scientists, practitioners portray data because I think we have failed as scientists to communicate effectively to the public And what often gets communicated to them is that men are this way and women are that. When in reality, it's that on average, men are slightly more or to some degree more likely to do this and women are to some degree more likely to do that. The analogy that I always think about in my mind is what if I said the statement, men are taller than women? What if I said that, you know? research shows that men are taller than women. Well, since it doesn't take a scientist to look around and see that many, many men are shorter than many women, right? So you can't, the the statement that men are taller than women doesn't make any sense, right? Because there's a wide variety of sizes of men and women. But all of us know that on average, men are on average taller than women. But that doesn't mean that quote-unquote, men are taller than women. So in the same way, you wouldn't say men watch porn and women like to chat sexually because that ignores the fact that many men don't like to watch porn and many women do like to watch porn. So I just really don't like the way that those sorts of statements portray 
the data and our brains are too small to understand that. And so I think it has to be explained almost every single time as I always do. And I'm sure you as the listeners are getting tired of me repeating that. All right, moving on. Um, I have several pages of notes and I'm about a quarter of the way down the first page. (laughs) So, oh boy. Okay. She went on to tell us about the website ashleymadison.com, which is, if you don't know, a website for married people to have secret sex with other people. She named some statistic or something. And, you know, it's quite interesting how many people go on Ashley Madison. Apparently, infidelity is rampant in our country, if you look at that statistic. And apparently, a lot of people are interested in it. So it seems to be much more normal for married people or committed people to seek sexual relationships outside of their committed relationship. So those at UN podcast podcast land. So there's this website called Ashley Madison, as I said. What's the number one day that women sign up on Ashley Madison out of the year? What's the day that you think most is the is the largest number of women signing up on Ashley Madison? Well, it is the day after Mother's Day, apparently. And it is speculated that that is because women feel unappreciated and unloved. So they will sign up after Mother's Day and decide that they want to apparently cheat on their spouses. And what do you imagine is the second highest sign-up day for Ashley Madison for women? If you guessed the day after Valentine's Day, then you would be right. Because again, their spouses make them feel uncared for on Valentine's Day. It is speculated. And therefore, the day after they say, screw it, you know, give me another partner. I want to have sex with them. And just getting back to my little rant on gender, at the very beginning, I think I kind of missed it because I was not always paying 100% attention. But I'm pretty sure she said and, and stuck to this policy throughout the all-day training that whenever she talked about the unfaithful partner, she referred to that person as a male. And whenever she referred to the hurt partner or the partner who was cheated on, she referred to that person as a female. So she would say, so when he cheated on her, as examples, she would always use the male as the cheater and the female as the, as the cheaty, as it, as it might be described. And again, I just have to say, like, why would you do that? I'm pretty sure upon, if my memory serves me, research shows that men are more likely to cheat than women are. But I think it's like a 60-40 thing at this point. In the past, it was a a greater margin between men and women. And, and that gap is quickly shrinking. It's speculated because women have more power. They work outside of the house and, and have more access. So as one of the only men in the training, I have to say, it's just a little bothersome. To me, it's like, just to continue on this rant a little bit, to me, it's like you have a training on crime. And for simplicity's sake, you always have the criminal, a black man, and the victim, a white man. And you just refer to the, the criminal, the you know perpetrator, as so the black guy walks up to the white guy in the alley and beats him over the head. And throughout the day, whenever you refer to the criminal, you say the black man. Well, again, this is different because men aren't oppressed in our society and black men are. But I, th- I hope you get my point that you wouldn't do that. No one would ever, ever do that. They would never do that to black people. And to me, it just seems unnecessary. You could easily switch up the pronouns or just use they. So, or he or she or something. 
Plus, the other obvious issue here is it completely ignores same-sex couples, which is another rant I should go on. I feel bad because I, I liked the training overall. I mean, it was of, of trainings that I've been to, it was definitely worth going to and worth my money. So I'm, I'm nitpicking here. But one of the other issues was that she never, I don't think once, I don't think once did she mention a same-sex couple and or a polyamorous couple or a trans person. One person midway through the training asked her a question about gay couples as an open-ended question, something like, well, what about gay couples? You know, do you, do you want to talk about that? And she didn't really respond very thoroughly. I don't think she's a bigot. I don't think she is purposely trying to oppress LGBT people, but I think it's a little, I don't know, uncomfortable to be at a training where none of the planned material even mentions LGBT people. But again, I'm probably nitpicking. All right, back to my notes here. So she gave an example of a client that she worked with, and the husband said that he wanted to go to a massage parlor for hand jobs. So she meets primarily, this was interesting actually to me, she primarily meets individually with her couples. When they come to her, she primarily meets individually with them. And she only meets with them together when there's a specific reason to do so. But it seems like her primary mode is to meet with them individually. And so she gave this example of a husband who felt like he wasn't getting any sex from his wife and the wife was reporting that she just wasn't interested in sex and they had been together for a long time. And the husband said that he was considering going to a massage parlor for, I'm presuming, hand jobs. And Dr. Spring cautioned him away from massage parlors and recommended instead ashleymadison.com. And there were gasps in the, in the audience when she said this. And so... He went to the wife, the husband, and asked his wife if it was okay if he went to AshleyMadison.com so he could meet up with people that didn't mind having sex with a married man. And the wife apparently said, outstanding. That is wonderful. I'm, I'm, go for it. It'll relieve me of the pressure of having to have sex with you and you can get what you need and great. And again, as she said that, a woman next to me turned to her friend and mouthed the word, what, you know? And so it's just interesting to see people's reactions. I didn't know what to think as she was giving that example. Someone then asked her about her decision about recommending Ashley Madison over the massage parlor, asking, well, what's the difference? Why would you caution him away from the massage parlor and toward Ashley Madison? I mean, what's the logic there? And Dr. Spring uh, justified her decision by saying that the massage parlor is illegal and you can get in trouble with the law, whereas with Ashley Madison, it's not illegal. So, you know, there is some logic there, but it didn't seem to satisfy the person who asked the question. It was interesting to note the facial expressions on the people around me at the beginning of the training. I don't know if I'm reading them right, of course, I can't read people's minds, but it seemed to me that there were a number of people, maybe, you know, a small minority of people who had a lot of visceral reactions to a lot of the things that she was saying. And I was just taking note of it. I was thinking, you know, I wonder 
what's going on in their mind. I think it's just an uncomfortable topic for people in general and clinicians as well. I find that when I talk to therapists, I don't know how comfortable they are talking about sex and other such things. Um, people have varying degrees of comfort level, which bothers me to some extent because uh, we were a room full of marital therapists. That was the audience was, you know, 200 or so marital therapists. And you would think that they would be comfortable with the ins and outs, as it were, of sexual discussions. It's not that you approve or disapprove of any one thing or another, but the the comfort level is there and the the ability to listen without gasping, I guess, I, f I think should be there. And again, most people didn't have visceral reactions to the things she was saying, but a lot of people did. There were, you know, there were giggles and this sort of thing. And I just thought, hmm. She gave a funny Woody Allen quote. It goes, masturbation is having sex with the person I love. She talked a lot about how cyber activity is like cocaine. She said that we're wired for sex and we're wired to notice pop-ups or text messages. She kept talking about pop-ups, actually. So this is, I'm going to say a few criticisms. Apparently, I'm realizing this. Um, I, I'm, I really, again, really love the training overall. I, I learned things and benefited from it. But when I hear things that kind of bug me, I, I tend to uh, write them down in my notes. And here it is. Uh, she kept talking about pop-ups. And she, 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 you know, she was trying to demonstrate the, the cocaine addictive nature of the internet and of pop-ups. She kept pop-up, pop-up, click, 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 pop-up, pop-up. And then there's a pop-up. And I just thought, I haven't seen a pop-up in... 12 years. So I don't know what, she, I, maybe the training is that old or something, but who, who out there in podcast land has even seen a pop-up in the last, I don't even know, seven years, maybe I, I don't see pop-ups anymore for, I don't know, somehow my browsers have all figured out how to negate the pop-up thing. I think there's even a button that you can do in your preferences that says, no, I don't want to see pop-ups. And plus, I don't think that when people look at porn, it's primarily pop-up based. I think it's just just you know regular browser-based internet porn. But anyway, so <laughs> it's just kind of funny. Anyway, she also went on. She I don't know how old she is, but um, I find that you know there's a certain cutoff age of people, and if you're older than that age, you tend to see text messaging at least currently as a this evil thing that teens do in this annoying way. Um, she talked about how text messaging was addictive, which is, um, I don't know, an exaggeration in my mind. Text messaging is just another form of communication. And yes, we are not mature yet as a society as it com when it comes to managing that. I mean, there are people that I know who will text in the middle of a conversation as I'm talking to them, which is obviously not fair and it's definitely rude behavior and people should be ridiculed for doing such things and so we're still working those you know kinks out but for the most part people manage it pretty well and it's not in and of itself addicting and there isn't anything evil about texting people but i wrote in my notes that she said that texting is addictive or is addicting and she didn't, she didn't temper it with, for some people, texting is addicting. She just said, texting is absolutely addicting. And, and she said something like, again, I loved the training, but anyway, she said something like, some people text 10, 20, 50 times a day. And I'm thinking, 
I frequently text 10, 20, 50 times a day because I'm just, that's just how I communicate with people. I communicate with my coworkers through texting. It's just, it's just an easy way to contact people with a short little message like, Hey, where are you? Or meeting today at 12 or something, you know? Now, having said that, can texting become a problem for people? Absolutely. And I think the pendulum has swung a little too far regarding allowing kids to have access to these technologies. In the beginning, when I remember in the beginning, this is another sidetrack. I'll probably never get through these notes. But anyway, I remember in the beginning when cell phones first came out as a therapist that would sometimes work with teens and their parents, I would find the parents and the teachers would be 100% no tolerance of cell phones at schools. They would say, if I see a cell phone, I'm going to take it and it's mine. I'm, and I'm never giving it back. And parents would say, do not bring your cell phone to school. Don't do that. Or the parents wouldn't even get their kid a cell phone. Now it seems that all kids have cell phones, one, which is, you know, fine in and of itself. But the teachers have varying levels of response to when they see a cell phone out and being used. And I have one client right now. I don't have very many teen clients these days, but I have one. And he was telling me that not only does he have his cell phone out on the desk as he's in class at school, in high school, but the school has given him an iPad as just, you know, they give all their students iPads because they're moving to a completely iPad-based education system where there's no textbooks and all their assignments are on their iPad. And I'm sure this is the wave of the future. And I'm sure it's probably a better model given that books are expensive and heavy and need updating constantly and all this stuff. So I see the benefit of it, of course. I'm sure there are downsides. But one of the things they haven't seemed to work out is that these iPads are completely open to the user to add applications and to set the settings in whatever they, way they want to. It's just, an, it's just an iPad with no software on it that manages the use of it. So the student will be in class and getting Snapchats and Facebook notifications and text messages and emails and, you know, all those things and all those notifications while they're in class on their iPad that they're supposed to have out. And there's no monitoring of that. And there's no, and the teachers don't say, hey, you need to turn off your Facebook notifications when you're in class. So do that now, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, I don't see how kids manage that personally. When I am trying to get work done, I have to turn things off. For instance, right now, my cell phone is on silent, and which means not even buzzing. That's another thing, people out there. Just because you put your, your cell phone on silent and it doesn't mean that it necessarily will not buzz. And buzzing is not silent. Buzzing is loud. Buzz, buzzing, by definition, is not silent. It makes a noise. If it was just buzzing, like it just rattled and made no noise, and it only sort of rattled your leg because it was in your pocket, then fine. But often people will put their cell phone on the desk, and it'll rattle. And it's very distracting to me. I don't know if it's because I come from another age when these sorts of things weren't around, but when I hear buzzing and bings and alarms, it, it completely distracts me and I can't concentrate on what I'm supposed to be concentrating on. I'll, I'll be in a meeting with a bunch of other professors and a cell phone, some people, sometimes people's cell phones will just, just start ringing and whoever owns the cell phone doesn't do anything about it. They just sit there. And you and I think it's because they're just like, well, my cell phone's ringing. Eventually, it'll stop. And I'm like, come on, people, put it on silent. The other thing, but the more often thing that I find is that people will have it on buzz, 
and it'll be buzzing away for, you know, when it starts buzzing, when someone's calling you, it'll buzz for, you know, 30 seconds, a minute or something. And so, you know, and it's so distracting. I just think, do you have no shame? I don't know. I, I don't know. I have a feeling I'm a fuddy-duddy, but on the other hand, I think in 50 years, people will agree with me. But that is yet to be seen. All right. Back to the notes. Still on page one out of six. Okay. So where was I? Pop-ups. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> pop-ups. It's hilarious to me. I, I don't know why. Right? I mean, has anyone seen a pop-up in the past seven years? I mean, I, having said that, I think I've seen one pop-up in the past seven years. I'll, I'll give it that. But she seemed to think pop-ups were a major part of the internet experience and of pornography. So anyway. Now, having said that, she did mention something about technology, another thing about te technology that I completely agree with in that <clears throat> in, in, for a lot of my adult clients, uh, young adult clients, I see the following thing that is, def that is definitely different than it was 10, 20 years ago in that not only are corporations requiring their employees to work longer hours, they for instance, arrive at 7 a.m. and work until 6 or 7 at night. This is very common in Seattle. I actually have a client that's from another region in the States, and he just moved up here and worked and works for a major organization up here. And he, he asked me, he's like, well, you grew up in the Seattle area, right? I said, I said, yes. And he said, does everyone work such long hours in Seattle? Is that is that a Seattle thing? Because he said where he was from, people worked, you know, regular hours, eight to five, that kind of thing. He said, nobody does eight to five. Everyone does like six to seven or, you know, whatever. So not only are corporations putting a tremendous amount of pressure on non-union employees to work ungodly hours, which is not healthy, by the way. And I'm not just saying like not health. I'm saying it's literally not healthy for your body and your mind. If you have problems, there's a good chance that it might be because of your work hours. So not only that, but they also require either subtly or overtly that the employee, after they come home, have their cell phone or their computer or whatever ready to go to respond to emails and phone calls and texts and all that kind of stuff. So what ends up happening is people will come home and they're still working. They're still basically on the clock and, they're, and they're, their brain and their soul has not relaxed and never gets a chance to do that and, and you know, bleeds into the weekends. And back in the day, for the vast majority of people, when they left the office, you could not contact them. And, and the only way you could contact them was through the home phone. And most people just did not do that. But now apparently it is. So this was not what she was talking about. But what she was talking about was that people are in bed. Both of them are on their iPads or their phones and working still or reading something or texting people or da da da. And they're not being intimate with each other. And the last thing that people will do will to be to close their device and, and put it on the nightstand. And the first thing people will do is pick up their device and check it. I don't think this is inherently wrong, the way that she was describing it. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. If that's the lifestyle you want to have, great. But it does raise some interesting questions. And I think people should really ask those questions and wonder if it is making their life better. I would argue that when you're in a constant state of being in contact with stressful things 
or potentially stressful things, I should say, then that raises your stress biology, shall I say, and that is not healthy for you. Plus, another thing that it does politically is it puts employees in this position where because everyone else is doing it, they feel like they have to do it. And basically they're working many more hours of the week than they're getting paid for. And of course, managers and corporations love this because they get quote unquote more productivity out of you. And they don't care about your sex life or your mental health, really. They just want you to work as many hours as possible and produce the most possible for the least amount of money. And how do you do that? Well, you don't want to have them work more hours and pay them. You want to have them work more hours and not pay them. So to me, it's a political problem. It seems very strange to me, even though in today's modern society, we have a lot of wealth and a lot of convenience. For some reason, we're working more hours than we were before. And to me, that makes no sense. We should be working less hours. And I primarily blame this on materialism because in order to afford a certain level of, of living, you have to work a tremendous amount and that encourages people to work more than they probably should. There was a time when people were satisfied with a very simple split level house in the suburbs and they had one or two cars and they had one small TV, and they were happy. Now you need to have a brand new car every few years. You need to have a 5,000 square foot home and a you know four car garage. Uh, you need to go on expensive vacations, and all for what? I think all it does is it drags us down. Now, if that's the life you want to have, great. But I really encourage people to think about whether or not that is the life they want. And I'm not asking that people go off the grid and become the Unabomber. I'm just saying, how can you scale your life back in a real way that makes you not have to earn so much money? Imagine, for instance, if you're one of those people out there that earns a, that has like a very expensive home and your mortgage is, I don't know, three, four thousand a month or something. Imagine your your mortgage being half that and translate $2,000 a month into how much less you would have to work. How much do you earn per hour? Well, is that worth it to you to have a smaller home in a less nice neighborhood? And in exchange for that, you work half as much. And instead of working 60 hours a week, you only work 30 hours a week. Is that worth it to you? I think for many people, it is. I remember hearing once, I don't know if this is accurate, but they did a research study asking very elderly people what they regretted in life. And very few people said, I regret not working more. Most people said they regret that they didn't spend more time with their families, that they didn't spend more time doing fun things for themselves. Very few people said, geez, you know what? I wish I earned more money or I wish my house was even bigger. Very few people say that. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Anyway, where was I? I'm going, uh, this is tangent episode. I should just call this tangent episode. Training tangents. All right, getting back to, again, I'm already at the bottom of page one of the six page of notes, and I am a half an hour into the podcast. Okay, so anyway, anyway, I did appreciate her emphasizing the addictive and problematic nature of spouses texting and doing technology things just before they go to bed instead of being intimate with each other. She said that people don't become addicted to porn, but instead they become addicted to the endogenous 
neurochemicals that get released due to porn for some people. She said that people become addicted to dopamine, adrenaline, testosterone, serotonin, these sorts of things that are triggered as a result of pornographic images being viewed. She said that she often hears from hurt wives who catch their husbands watching porn. She says that she often hears them say, what does this woman have that I don't have? She'll hear. And she says that she will tell the wives, it has nothing to do with that. It's not that he's looking for someone that has something that you don't have. It's merely an addiction. It's an addiction to the release of a chemical in the brain that real people cannot compete with. Um, And I think that that's a powerful message that she was giving, that when it comes to porn addiction, it's, it's not that the person is looking for sex per se, is that as animals that are driven to procreate and therefore have sex, we cannot help ourselves when it comes to images that stimulate certain portions of the brain that have been created to reward us so that we will continue having sex. You know, before you had porn, you just had human beings. And so people would be compelled toward each other to have sex so that they will procreate. Well, when you can create a box in your office that will pour pornographic images at you at speeds that you just have to click and click, you can literally click and click and click and porn and porn and new and real human beings cannot compete with that. She gave an example, a common, commonly cited example of research studies that involve rats where you have two levers, essentially. She said one lever stimulates a, an electrical current that goes straight into their brain. So they do surgery on a rat and they put the wire into a particular part of the brain that stimulates the dopamine system, I believe. And every time the rat hits this one lever, it will stimulate that part of the brain. The other lever will be for food. And they put the rat in the cage and they see what the rat does. And over time, the rat only hits the lever that stimulates that part of the brain and forgets to or neglects to hit the lever that actually gets them food. And so the rats will risk dying because they just keep pressing this lever that stimulates their part of the brain. So it seems eerily analogous to someone clicking their mouse, you know, ironically it's called a mouse, to get stimulation that will stimulate that part of the brain and neglect everything around them that will give them normal sustenance like food and relationships. She gives the following test for cybersex addiction. There are nine different criteria, so to speak. So number one is the amount of time you spend. Number two is do you, do you do it for longer than intended? Uh, number three is, are you preoccupied with finding online sexual partners, even when you're not online? Number four is, do you spend an inordinate amount of time anticipating online sexual arousal or gratification? Number five, do you hide your online interactions? Number six, do you find yourself less invested in your real-life sexual partner? Number seven, do you prefer cybersex as your primary form of sexual gratification? Number eight, have your cybersex activities forced you to compromise your values? And number nine, have your online activities jeopardized a significant relationship, a job, an educational or career opportunity, or your financial security? 
So these are pretty common test questions for any kind of addiction. This isn't an official DSM addiction. This is just one way that she likes to test for cybersex addiction. And my reaction to this is the following. For some people, this test, I'm sure, works wonderful. For many people that have addictions to online sex, I think that this test will be a good way of assessing whether or not they have a problem. These are good questions for anyone to ask, really. But the caveat to this is that these questions, as any question along these lines, is completely culturally dependent and socially constructed and subjective. So, for instance, um, I think that these tests run into a problem in two following situations. One is, is when you have a person that has a difficult time evaluating the difference between what are things that they want to do as opposed to what other people want them to do. And let me explain. And the other problem is when people use the test to judge or treat other people unfairly. So, and I'll explain that for a second. So one of the questions is, do you prefer cyber sex as your primary form of sexual gratification? So according to this test, they're basically saying if you answer yes to that question, then you are in all likelihood an addict, cyber sex addict. So again, do you prefer cyber sex as your primary form of sexual gratification? So again, I would say that for most people that answer yes to that question, they will probably find that they would benefit by addressing their cyber sex use and figuring out a new lifestyle that would be better for them uh, overall. But for some people, I can imagine, I don't know anybody like this, but I can imagine somebody who does prefer cyber sex as their primary form of sexual gratification at that moment. So for instance, imagine some guy moves across the world to another part of the world and doesn't have a lot of interest in meeting anybody to have face-to-face sex with and instead wants to look at porn or wants to interact with people over chat or over Skype or something and have sex that way. I can imagine someone doing that and being very interested in that and not very interested in meeting someone in the flesh and that person not being a quote-unquote addict. We have to clarify to some extent what we mean by addict. I'm not going to do that here, but just know that the word addiction and addict, these words are hotly debated sometimes. With every one of these questions, I can imagine an exception. And so instead of just using a yes or no question to determine whether or not someone has a problem with something, I think you really just have to take these on a case-by-case basis. For instance, sometimes people will say, how much is too much masturbation? How often do you have to masturbate to be considered an addict to masturbation or an addict to porn? There is no threshold like that. You have to take it on a case-by-case basis. One person could be masturbating every day and looking at porn, and that could be a problem, whereas another person could be masturbating every day and it and it wouldn't be a problem. So, And the part of this that I think often doesn't get discussed is that our country is still quite backward when it comes to sex. People from other countries, and if there were aliens looking down at us, 
they would all agree that Americans have a very strange attitude towards sex. And we're not the only society that has strange attitude towards sex. I would say that Canadians have a similar attitude to, to Americans. I know a lot of Canadians that agree with me on that. I know a lot of Mexicans that would say that they have different problems with sex, but, you know, perhaps to the same degree. Uh, I'm Japanese and, and have a somewhat good picture of what Japanese culture is like regarding sex, and they definitely, oh my God, have their problems. So Americans are not the only people, but I, I can speak to what American culture is like. And one of the things that we like to propagate through a culture is that basically sex is a bad thing. And particularly masturbation is a bad thing. Masturbation was originally seen as a sin against God. And even though many people don't believe that anymore, even though they might be Christian or religious, I still see that attitude in, in many of the people that I talk to about masturbation, including my clients. And I'm not saying that masturbation is something people should be doing, but I think that individuals should be able to explore it without having this social construction around that says that masturbation is wrong and is inherently either weak or pathetic or unhealthy in some way. It certainly can be. Definitely it can be for both men and women. By the way, uh, another thing that I just want to point out is that compulsive masturbation or problematic masturbation, you probably in your head, if you're anything like the average person, in your head you imagine a man. Well, this shouldn't shock you that many women also have problems with pornography and with masturbation. Of those people that I have treated that have been compulsive masturbators and compulsive porn users, um, some of them have been women. And so it just needs to be said. Now, a lot less women, but some are definitely women. Women have the same basic brain structure when it comes to dopamine and motivation to have sex and to do things that engage that system in the brain, and therefore they would have similar problems. The problem is, is that because it is a shameful thing, even for men to have a problem with this, it's even more shameful for women to have a problem with this. And so you will find that women will not talk about it and will not get help for it. So anyway, she provided this, uh, or this test for cyber sex addiction that I, I thought was, you know, good, but didn't have the caveat that I wished it would have. But I rarely am satisfied in this way. And the only thing that people would have to say is something like, well, so here are some guided, here are some questions that you can use to assess for cyber sex addiction. But remember that you just have to take it on an individual basis and you have to take into consideration culture and social construction. And you just have to be reflective about that. That's all that I would want a trainer to say. If they just said that, I would completely say, okay, well, they mentioned it at least. Um, another cultural issue that I could see arising in this cyber sex addiction test is imagine you're a single woman and you are in the closet about being gay and you are in a community where you feel you can't come out in a safe way and you become obsessed with looking at lesbian pornography or chatting with other lesbians or doing Skype sexual things with gay women. Now, you could imagine that per person answering yes to a lot of these questions. Do you, do you hide your online interactions? Well, yes, I do. Do you find yourself less invested in real life partners? Well, yes, because I 
feel like I can't come out in my community. So there are issues along these lines that definitely need to be considered. And also along those lines, imagine someone that has a fetish that they are extremely ashamed about. You know, someone's into S&M. They're really into being, you know, talked down to. They want to find a dominant person to talk down to them and in a consensual way. And that turns them on. And they're ex- they're extremely ashamed about it because society loves to shame people like this. And so instead of even going to their husband or wife, they go online to do it. So if our society was less screwed up about S&M, this person would be more likely to work out some kind of thing with their spouse, but instead has to turn to the internet and ends up to some extent obsessing on it on the internet because of the way our culture is. So again, these things need to be taken into consideration in my view. Another genderized thing that she said that slightly bothered me was she talked about how women need to feel safe in order to enjoy sex. And by implication, men don't. And by implication, all women need to have a certain level of safety in order to have, in order to enjoy sex. And I've looked into the research on this and it is true that for some women, it appears that if their fear system in their brain is engaged, they can't achieve orgasm or they have a lot of difficulty as to opposed to times when they don't have the fear system engaged in their brain. But this is not all women by any means. And this is, this does not mean that men do not share that same issue. They seem to share it a little less than women do, but men also share it. So again, when we say the statement, men are taller than women, that makes no sense. And so we should not say women need to feel safe to enjoy sex when many women don't and many men do. So I have, for instance, talked with clients about this. I had a male client years ago who had this exact issue when he did not feel interpersonally safe and secure with his girlfriend. He could not orgasm. It was hard for him to even begin to have sex with her because men aren't that different from women. So again, if you talk to people in the population, They would say, oh, men don't care. They just want to get their rocks off. They'll have sex with a tree if this tree had a vagina. And it just is not true. Certainly there are men like that. And certainly there are women like that. Perhaps, according to research, more men are like that. But not all men by any means. I mean, it's sort of an absurd notion. I mean, imagine a man, a typical guy, like a friend of yours or something. Imagine him being with a woman who he doesn't feel very comfortable with. Well, you could imagine that sex isn't necessarily going to go that well for him. Whereas imagine a man who feels very secure and loved and cared for, and you can imagine that things would go better for him because he's not scared or intimidated or worried. So when you just put it that way, it, it, it makes sense, right? So again, just another little bothersome genderized statement. Oh, it is tiresome to be me sometimes with all of my complaints about society. She, she brought up an inter- interesting boundary that I think is worth mentioning. She said that if she was talking with a client and say she was saying, well, I, I met up with my ex-boyfriend the other day and, you know, he's just a friend. It's not a big deal. 
I, I don't want to tell my husband that I met up with my ex because my husband will get upset. So, you know, I, it, but I'm not cheating. There's nothing going on. She will confront the client and say, well, do you talk about your husband with your ex, with your ex-boyfriend? Does your ex-boyfriend ask you about your husband? Do is Is your husband a part of the interaction, essentially, even though your husband isn't there? If not, then you are cheating on your partner, which I think is is a good guideline to some extent, because you can imagine someone meeting up for lunch with their ex. And if the ex-girlfriend doesn't talk about her husband very much, the ex-boyfriend might get the impression that the ex-girlfriend is open to having an affair and one thing leads to another. And before you know it, um, the wife is cheating with her ex-boyfriend. So, you know, thought that was wise of Dr. Spring to mention. She mentioned Sex Addiction Anonymous, or SAA, which can be found at saa.com. If people are sex addicts, they need to go to these meetings and get a sponsor. She also mentioned the movie Thanks for Sharing, which apparently has to do with sex addiction, which I am going to go on Netflix right now and put that movie in my queue. Someone in the audience also mentioned the movie Don John, which I have not seen, but I wanted to see because I heard it was good. So I will make sure that is in my queue as well. I noticed at the training that there was really no mention of how great sex is in humans' lives. I find that often in clinical settings, this applies to drug use as well, that when psychologists talk about sex or drugs, they will rarely talk about the pleasure that it gives to people. And I just feel like I want to mention that, even though this is way into the podcast and I should have mentioned it up front. The reason why people have sex and the reason why people look at porn and the reason why people masturbate and the reason why people like fetishes is because it gives people great pleasure in a very innocent, healthy way. And the vast majority of people's sexual activities are healthy and wonderful and make the world go round. They provide not only just pure physical pleasure, but bonding. They provide meaning to people's lives. And in my estimation, Americans should be having much, much more sex than they do. I think that most people would characterize themselves as physically, physical intimacy-wise deprived. That, you know, not just sex and intercourse in and of itself, but also, you know, the myriad of other things that are associated with, with sex and intimacy and warmth and physical activity. And I'm not just talking about your spouses, but I'm talking about friends and family, you know, meaning hugging and cuddling and holding hands. We are a very stuffy, non-touchy culture that is creating a lot of very thirsty Americans. Along those lines, I was once at another training for drugs, and there were a number of different presenters, and they were all talking about different drugs and how each drug had its physiological effects and how it can become problematic in this way and da da da. And then one guy got up and he started talking about his drug that he was presenting on. And at the beginning of his presentation, he talked about why people use the drug and why it's pleasurable and what people actually say about why they like the drug, which I found to be strangely unfamiliar to me. But why would that be not mentioned in presentations about substance use? I mean, the reason why people use substances is not because they want to become an addict. It's because 
it makes them feel really good. It produces effects that they love so much that they would rather risk addiction than not have that feeling. So I just thought I should mention that little bit there. <clears throat> Another pet peeve of mine that I just want to mention was, and again, I guess I'm just a complainer. Uh, at the training, they had, you know, that typical banquet style room with the round tables and, you know, each table had about eight chairs around it. The 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 nice part about it was they didn't put any chairs on the side of the table that was closest to the podium. You know, if you're in that unfortunate seat that has your back to the podium for the entire presentation, you have to be turned 180 degrees away from the table, which is not a very comfortable way to sit for all people. So they only had seats on kind of a horseshoe around each table. But the problem that I find at a lot of these banquets is that they don't, whoever sets up the room doesn't think about how much space you need in between the tables to walk if people are actually sitting at the tables. And I've actually been a part of this for a friend's wedding. I was setting up tables for the reception and we were setting up all the tables. And what we were doing is we were putting the tables and then we were putting the chairs and we were scooting the chairs in underneath the table, right? So the, cha- the chairs are, are completely you know pushed in with without anyone sitting in it. And when you look at a room like that, it looks like, oh, look at all the room that you can look, you can walk between the tables. The problem is when you actually have real human beings sitting in the chairs and some of them, some people are not, you know, tiny and are, you know, larger. There's a wide variety of sizes of people. Let me put it that way. And so when you actually have human beings sitting in chairs, that will often look a lot different than what you imagine it will look like when you're just setting up the chairs and the tables without anybody in it. And so at this training, I found that that's what was lacking was once everyone was sitting in the chairs, you couldn't navigate through the crowds. There was no way to get around it. And I was sitting, unfortunately, at a major thoroughfare that looked like there might have been room. And so when anyone wanted to go to the bathroom or get back to their seat or whatever, they had to walk right by me. And many people had to be like, oh, excuse me. Oh, can you scoot in? Oh, I'm sorry. And I just like, oh, it was just aggravating. There was a lot of room in in that hall and they could have just spread the tables out a little bit more and provided more walking space. But of course, not everyone does that. All right. What else can I complain about? It's kind of fun to complain. It's kind of, you know, venting, cathartic. Send me your complaints. You know, if you want to have some of this pleasure that I'm having, you know, just send me an email and say, you know what I'd like to complain about is when you complain so much that you ruin the podcast. I'm trying to learn here and all you want to do is talk about chairs and tables. I mean, this is stupid. You know, go ahead and send me that email. I'm I'm cool with that. I lie. I'm actually totally not completely cool with people complaining about the podcast. It actually hurts my feelings to some extent, but you know, it's a free country. You can send me that email if you want. Uh, okay. Wow. So right after that complaint, here comes another complaint. The other complaint complaint here is, you know, I said there's about 150, 200 people. Well, there were almost no people of color. I am only half Asian, which makes me a half person of color. And I did a thorough scan of all the faces in the room and found only three or four people of color. Now, that doesn't mean that there wasn't diversity in other ways because the color of someone's skin isn't the only indication of diversity. But I just thought it was a little bothersome that in Seattle at this training of 150, 200 marital therapists that there were so few people of color. 
I, I saw one person of color and I said, Oh, great. Another, I can add another person to the list. And it turned out that person was a food server and not a, an attendant. So that um, knocked my numbers back down. But anyway, that of course is not a fault of the training. I, I think it's a fault of recruitment programs, trying to recruit people of color into our profession. And I also think it's a, it's to some extent a fault of people of color. As a person of color myself, I will say to you, if you're a person of color, get out there, man. If you're thinking about becoming a therapist, we need you. So apply, you know, whatever career you're thinking about doing, uh, consider this profession because we need you. Our country is becoming more and more diverse, yet the diversity among professionals is not keeping up with that increase in diversity. And so, come on, apply, get into the profession and help people. You can do it. And let's increase our numbers of people of color. Again, as a person of color, I feel like I can yell at you because I'm one of you, right? Are we cool? Okay. She gave another example, which I thought was interesting, of a couple that she was seeing. The wife didn't like to have sex for very long. She worked a lot of hours and just liked her sleep. So the couple came to an arrangement where the man would watch porn for two hours while she was sleeping, and then he wouldn't orgasm, and he would go to bed, they would have sex, and then he would orgasm. And she really liked that because he came to bed and they would have sex for five or ten minutes, and that was all she wanted, and then she'd go back to sleep, and the husband got what he wanted because he got to watch his two hours of porn and also got to have you know, a moment with his wife. So that got a lot of laughs from the, from the crowd. Um, I seem to remember actually having an arrangement like this once with a client as well years ago. It wasn't two hours of porn watching, but it was actually a female, I think. Anyway, I think I remember the details was the wife would masturbate in bed to get herself warmed up and then she would call the husband into the bedroom and then they would have sex. And if she didn't get herself warmed up, then they didn't have as good a sex, uh, which I thought was, you know, an interesting arrangement. Now, some people might say, well, maybe he should have been doing more foreplay, which is, you know, definitely a question to ask, but there's nothing wrong with an arrangement like that that they came to. One person asked a very interesting question, which I... I don't know exactly what she meant by it, but it seemed, I don't know, it just seemed like a very interesting question. She stood up and she got the microphone and she asked, well, to some extent we have to ask the question, what's the purpose of sex and what is it for? We have to ask that question of ourselves of what's the purpose of sex? And I don't know about you, but there's something off about that question. The purpose we have, because we're talking about addiction and, and sex and how couples can relate better. And then she stands up and she says, well, we just have to ask ourselves what, what the purpose of sex is. And maybe it was an innocuous question, or maybe I didn't understand what she was saying, but it, it seemed to have a certain religiousness to it or something. I mean, the only thing I can think of, and this is pure speculation, is that she was saying the purpose of sex is to glorify God. There are many religious people who that's how they think. And there's nothing wrong with that way of thinking, by the way. It's completely healthy thinking. There's nothing wrong with it. But it is a particular point of view. And for some people, they might 
insert that question in the conversation because they want other people to have the same view that they do. So they might say, look, sex is not just for pleasure. It's supposed to be for procreation and it's supposed to be to glorify God. As someone who grew up in America, I know that Christians will definitely talk like that sometimes. And there's, again, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, There is something wrong with telling other people how they should be thinking. Um, For instance, non-religious people can't say to religious people that think that way and say, that's ridiculous, you can't think that way, and the opposite is true as well. But anyway, so there's just something weird about the question she, she answered. And Dr. Spring answered in a way that I really liked, which is, well, we should ask what the purpose of sex is to each client. Each client should answer that question, what's the purpose of sex for them? Having thought about it, maybe the person who asked the question wasn't asking from a place of religiousness and instead was asking from a place of of where Dr. Spring got to, which is if you know we really have to define in a way that values the client's meaning of sex. You know, for some people, the purpose of having sex is to bond with their partner and therefore masturbation is counter to that value. Whereas another person, sex is about physical pleasure, about selfish physical pleasure. And so therefore you can have that by yourself masturbating and you can also have that with someone else. You can mutually be selfish about getting sexual pleasure while having sex with each other. So yeah, I could see maybe that's what she was asking. I don't know. So the next part of the training she went into was very provocative and she said so. She said, whenever I talk about this, it's always very provocative. So here it goes. And she laid out the three common rules of marital therapy that she does not follow. And that was confusing to me. And again, I was probably phasing in and out of attention. But at first I thought she was saying she did follow these rules. And I was like, wait, but, but anyway. So the rules that are commonly told to marital therapists are these. There are three rules here. One is, is to never see couples individually. And as a marital therapist and as an educator in marital therapy, I can say that I do hear that from people sometimes. Some of my students will say, well, I heard you're not supposed to ever see couples individually. I heard that you're not supposed to do that. And Dr. Spring was saying she does not follow that rule. As I said earlier, I think her primary mode is to see couples individually, which is different from what most marital therapists would do. But I and perhaps a small minority of other marital therapists will often see couples individually. With some of my couples, I'll alternate every other time. So I'll see them together, and then I'll see them apart, then I'll see them together, see them apart. Having said that, I would say most of my clients, marital clients, 90%, I see almost exclusively as a couple. But like I said, I'm not opposed to seeing them individually for a number of reasons. The other rule that is often told to marital therapists that she doesn't follow is that the unfaithful partner needs to give up the affair person. I thought it was interesting words. So she had these different words, which I thought were good, was you have the unfaithful partner, you have the hurt partner, and you have the affair person. So the person that the unfaithful person is having an affair with is called the the affair person. So often in the literature, they will say, as soon as a couple comes into you and says that they are having, someone is having an affair, they have to give up that affair person in order for therapy to move, move forward. And I forget the authors that propose that. And there's some wisdom to that for sure. And, and from my understanding, the wisdom is that until that person makes that final leap and actually 
ends that relationship with the affair person, you can't begin to recover. You know, a lot of couples will come in and the unfaithful partner will say, well, just give me another few months or, well, you know, I'm trying to get out of the relationship. I I don't want to hurt him or I don't want to hurt her. And what a lot of clinicians will say is, look, come back to me when you give up the affair person, because until then I can't help you. But Dr. Spring was saying that she doesn't follow this rule. She says that the unfaithful partner will give up the therapist before they give up the affair person, which I thought, you know, is a interesting, probably to some extent accurate way of looking at it. For instance, you know, you see a couple, you see them together, and then they come separately, you see them individually. And the husband says, I'm having an affair. I don't want you to tell my wife. I don't know what to do. And the therapist says, look, you have to end that relationship with the affair person in order for us to work together. That's got to happen. Well, what Dr. Spring is saying is that what will happen is the husband will say, well, now I have to choose between my therapist and my affair person. I choose the affair person because the affair person is much more compelling than the therapist. So she, she doesn't do that. So she, I think, basically was saying that she will work with someone for a long time while they explore what they want to do about the affair which a lot of therapists are not comfortable with, and a lot of them gasped at at this. On one hand, you can imagine that if you don't draw that boundary with a client, that you could be seeing that couple for three years, all the while you know that the husband is having an affair, and you're just trying to help their relationship, but you know that there's this major piece that isn't being addressed, that isn't changing, that is putting a major wrench in the gears of therapy. And what she said to this and what other people were saying during the breaks I was talking with them, they were saying that they would do the same thing that Dr. Spring does, but they might terminate with someone eventually that doesn't end the relationship. You know, So the husband says, I'm having an affair. In an individual session, you say, okay, well, let's talk about it. What do you want to do? Da, da, da. And over time, say three months later, therapist says, so how's it going with the affair person? Husband says, well, we're still together. The therapist at that point could say, look, I can't help you improve your relationship with your wife if you don't make a decision here. You have to make a decision to to end the relationship and then we can move towards recovery or you have to divorce and move on with your life. You have to make that choice or else I'm going to terminate. And if you don't tell me what you're going to do, I'm going to terminate with you. That seemed like an appropriate, helpful approach. I think what people get caught up in is the question of, so you're just going to let the unfaithful partner have the affair? And this is what I hear from a lot of novice therapists. They'll say, so you're just going to let your client do that? The question is based in a paradigm that states that we as therapists are responsible for our client's behavior and that we as therapists tell people what to do with their lives. And that is, for the most part, not the way therapists think. Therapists don't think that they are the people that will tell people how to behave. That instead, we guide people and help them explore things in a meaningful way and let the client come up with their own solutions. And so this leads me to to my way that I talk to people about this. And that is, is that if I have a couple and I'm meeting individually with one person and they tell me that they're having an affair, I explore with them and say, how long? How do you feel about it? How do you feel about your marriage? What do you want to do? What's the plan here? But what I don't do, 
which is what a lot of therapists do, is they just continue to explore. And what ends up happening in, in my, this is just my humble opinion, is that the therapist and the client go into a sort of denial of the reality that the unfaithful partner is continually hurting the hurt partner, even if the hurt partner doesn't know that they're being cheated on. So if the therapist just continues to explore and continues to be accepting, so to speak, the therapist is colluding with the client's desire to be in denial of the reality that they are being unfaithful. Now, if the client is a sociopath, then there's that. But most clients are not. You know, the vast majority of people that are cheating on their spouses are not sociopaths. They are normal people with the same moral values as, as anybody else. But they've got themselves in into a situation and they have the normal psychological defense mechanisms that everyone has. And one of them happens to be denial. And if you're out there thinking that you would never do that, well, I wouldn't be so sure. I, for instance, I had a client that was cheating and they were talking with their therapist for years and had been cheating that entire time. And the vibe I got from the client was that the therapist was almost encouraging the client to have the affair. And in, in a way that was, was along the lines of, well, your marriage isn't going so well, so that's why you're having the affair. And you want to grow as a person, so that's why you're having the affair, which you know are valid points to explore. But to me, after a couple weeks or months of working with this couple and meeting individually with the one who was cheating, I, I asked them what their goals were. And they said, I'm using the word they to mask gender. And they said that their goals were to be honest and to have integrity and to live a life that made sense to them. And so I said, well, are you doing that right now? And they said, no, I'm not doing that right now. And I said, well, how are you going to get there? And they would say, well, I guess I have to tell my spouse that I'm cheating. And I said, okay, well, how do you want to do that? And then they would say, well, I, I don't think I want to. I, you know, and they have a million excuses. And then I say, well, but does that meet up with your goal of being a person of integrity? And they said, no. And so we'd go back and forth. And so basically I was to some extent pressuring the client to tell their spouse. But more specifically, I was pressuring the client to either end it, and if they weren't going to end it, then they should tell their spouse, because their spouse deserves to know. Now, that brings up a whole other question as to whether or not one should ever tell their spouse about infidelity. And the short answer is, there is no right answer to this question. You know, Should someone tell their spouse about past infidelity. It's a very, very tricky, tricky question. There are pros and cons to revealing the truth and there are pros and cons to not. But if you are in therapy and you are supposedly reflecting on yourself and exploring and being honest with yourself and continuing to cheat on somebody, that is, unless you're a sociopath, not living within your value system and therefore should be addressed in therapy in a very real and honest way. And I think it's the therapist's job to ask those tough questions. Now, at no point with this particular client did I ever say, I'm going to tell your spouse because I would never do that. And plus, it is explicitly stated in my disclosure statement that I wouldn't do that. And incidentally, what ended up happening was the cheating spouse did tell the hurt spouse. And when I saw the hurt partner in therapy, they, they 
asked me, so I'm under the impression that you knew about this. And I said, yes, I did. And they said, well, that makes me angry. And it, it, I feel humiliated that you and my partner were talking about the infidelity behind my back. And I said, I know, and I'm terribly sorry. And I apologized for it. And I said, I didn't know what else to do. I wanted to continue to talk with your partner about the infidelity. And all the while, I felt guilty about you not knowing about it. And I, I feel pain now that you are hurt by that, by that humiliation of, of being outside of that information. And so I had to repair that relationship and I had to be very real about it. But I, I told them what my justification was. And in the end, the hurt partner really respected my decision and came to see me as the, the needed catalyst to get their relationship moving forward and into recovery. The hurt partner saw me as the person that was very different from the unfaithful partner's ongoing therapist, because as I said earlier, the, the ongoing individual therapist never encouraged the cheating partner to reveal the information or to end it or to anything. So it's a very tricky thing. You know, as therapists, we're in general not supposed to tell clients what to do. We're not supposed to moralize. We're not supposed to pressure people to do things. But I think that therapy is a funny thing. And with enough wisdom, I think we can intuit and work together collaboratively with our clients to figure out what kind of stance we as therapists should take to be as helpful as possible. The unfaithful partner, this is years later now, will tell me that they really, really appreciated the pressure that I put on them to reveal it. And once they revealed it, felt much better about it and feel like that revelation to their spouse was a necessary step to moving forward in both of their lives. They're still struggling, but they're doing so with a lot of love toward each other and a lot of grace. They have sadness and hurts, but they love each other deeply. And it's really wonderful to see how people can recover from infidelity. Couples can become stronger after infidelity. This couple that I'm working with that I'm mentioning is much stronger now than they were before. It doesn't mean that hurting someone is a good thing, but it doesn't mean that when infidelity happens, that that's the end of a relationship or that things will never be good again. Relationships, long-term relationships have ebbs and flows. They go through various different phases, so to speak. They go through various different lives and there is a life after infidelity. So the third rule that she mentioned that is often told to marital therapists that she does not follow is that therapists are supposed to keep no secrets. It's a very common thing for a marriage and family therapist to say that secrets are evil and that they will infect a family and that if you play along as a therapist with the secret, you're playing along with the dysfunction and the illness in the system. And there is a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of truth to this idea. But does that mean that we should out everyone with their secrets immediately? The answer to me is no, and also to Dr. Spring. I was really happy that she talked about these sorts of things, because I often will talk with my students about this issue, and I find that 
they have been told one thing and then I'm telling them something else. And, and I, sometimes I wonder, am I the only one that thinks this? And therefore, am I an idiot for thinking this? So I felt validated by her talking about these rules that she does not follow. Again, the rules were never see couples individually. She does not follow that rule. Second rule was the unfaithful partner needs to give up the affair person right away. Again, um, not a, not a, that's a rule that's often told. She does not follow it. Neither do I. And the last is that therapists keep no secrets. And her justification here is interesting. She said that in order for therapy to move forward, the clients need to have a safe place to talk about whatever is happening. They need to have a safe place where they can be honest. When she sees couples individually, she wants to set up a situation where each partner is able to tell her whatever is happening and not worry that the therapist is going to turn to the partner and reveal that secret. And a lot of marital therapists will do this. And I think it's just this dogma that's been passed down from the history of marital therapy. And I think that it is not a good idea. Like I said earlier, I don't think it's a good idea to necessarily just explore endlessly with a client about their infidelity without putting some pressure on them to follow their own values. But I also don't think it's helpful to tell someone, look, if you tell me a secret, I'm just going to turn around and tell your partner. Because basically, according to Dr. Spring and according to me, you're telling the client not to tell you things. You're basically telling telling the client, I don't want to hear about your secrets. Just don't even, because if you're cheating, for instance, and you go into couples therapy and then you meet individually with your therapist and you're very ambivalent about telling anybody about the cheating and your therapist says, look, anything you tell me, I'm, I'm going to, I don't, I don't keep any secrets. I'm going to tell, I'm going to tell your partner. Well, say you really need someone to talk with about the infidelity and you don't have an individual therapist. You only have, this is your one therapist and which is often the case. And you say, well, I guess I'm not going to tell this therapist about it. And then you just go through dreamland working on the relationship when there's this huge elephant in the room, which is you're having an affair, but you won't talk about it because you're worried that your therapist is going to tell on you. So in those situations, how wonderful would it be if the client felt that they could tell the therapist and not worry about it being revealed right away? And it provides an opportunity for the therapist to begin to explore that with the client. She said that it's important to make sure that you have a policy around secrets with couples, whatever it is, and that you disclose it early and in a detailed manner so that the couple knows what they're getting into. Now, again, is is it always a good idea to hold on to secrets from clients? No. Are there cons to doing it? Absolutely. But therapy is more complicated than a set of rules. Human beings are more complicated than following a set policy. Things have to be explored. You have to think about things and you have to have questions and wonder. If a spouse tells you a secret and you quote unquote allow that secret to persist in therapy for a long time, every day that goes by, you run the risk of when the secret does come out, the hurt partner will hate you forever as a therapist and will be you know, justifiably betrayed, will feel justifiably betrayed. And it will be a disaster. That certainly is a risk that you're running and it needs to be acknowledged. And the secrets that she brought up, she says, don't always involve affairs. They could involve many things that partners have secrets about. Like she said, 
that a husband might say, my wife's vagina smells horribly and I don't know what to do about it. And I've never said anything to my wife because I don't want to hurt her feelings. But I feel like until her vagina smells not so bad, I I don't want to have sex with her. And, you know, it might sound like a funny thing for someone to think, but believe me, if you talk to couples, there are a lot more things like this than you would imagine. And I think justifiably so, because again, our culture is not very healthy when it comes to talking about these issues. I mean, the issue of a smelly vagina is one of ridicule and jokes and how many people talk about it. You know, and a lot of people would say, well, what kind of a woman wouldn't know that her vagina smells bad? I mean, you know, clearly something's very strange about that person. You'd be surprised how you could get used to a smell or you go into denial about it or you think people like it or I don't know. There's just a lot of different reasons. The reasons why we run into these problems and the reasons the reason why people have secrets about it is because they worry about what will happen. And so in order to have conversations with your clients about these sorts of things, you need to be able to keep secrets with them, is what she's saying. She cited an interesting Gottman statistic that the happiest couples in America don't resolve 69% of their conflicts. So John Gottman at the University of Washington studied couples and observed them. And apparently, according to her, she was citing this as a finding of his, that the happiest couples, not not the couples that have problems, but the happiest couples, the couples who are the happiest with each other in the United States, don't resolve 69% of their conflicts. Essentially, what Gottman and Dr. Spring are saying is that conflict is normal and that not having a resolution is normal and that people need to lower their expectations. Long-term relationships are not about resolving all your conflicts, clearly. So I thought that was a good point. She mentioned a few other statistics, like 50% of first marriages fail, and of of people who get married a second time, 60% fail. And if you add stepchildren, 70% fail. So, you know, pretty interesting statistic that, again, most marriages end in divorce, and second marriages are more likely to end in, in to end in divorce than first marriages, and if you add stepchildren, then you're even more likely to get divorced. I, and I think what her point was that people rush into getting married and they should slow down. I think that was what her point was. The thing that I'll say to that is that's all fine and good, and I think that what she's saying is is worthy. But it's this word fail. I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I probably have. But it's another complaint I have, and that is is that. The words we have for when a marriage ends is the word fail. This marriage failed. I, I have a failed marriage. My first marriage failed this, this way. Or other words are unsuccessful. Or if there's divorce, you call it a broken family. These are very interesting words for something that should have different words, in my humble opinion. Let me give you an example. Let's say you had a friendship and you became very, very close with, you became best friends. And for three years, you were best, best, best friends. But over time, you started getting on each other's nerves. Your interests started to diverge. And one of you moved out of town. You drifted apart. Five years, 10 years later, you're not that good of friends anymore. You still touch, you keep in touch on Facebook, but you're not, you're not best friends by any means. Well, would you call that a failed friendship? 
most people in my estimation would not. They would say, oh, we were best friends. We were, man, we're not, we're not that close anymore, but man, we were best friends. That, that, that person is a good friend of mine. So the word fail, you would never apply to that relationship. You would never say that was a failed friendship because the implication is, is that any friend should be a friend forever. But most people know that that's not true. Most people know that friendships come and go. Some friendships may last forever, but most don't. And it's wonderful to have friends when we do. It's sad when some of them end abruptly. But for most friends, they just sort of drift away. Well, why do we say marriages, when they end, fail? For some people, they end their marriage amicably. They get married, say, when they're 22, and they fall in love, and they have a great time. They don't have any kids. And at 30, they have their differences, but they're nice people, and they decide to get a divorce, and they're friends after the divorce. Would you call that a failed marriage, that these two people failed at marriage, that this is a broken family? I would say no. That is not an accurate word for it. I would say that the marriage ended, that they got divorced, that they ended amicably. So in my mind, I would, if we're using the fail success spectrum, I would say this young couple succeeded in marriage. They had a number of years where they succeeded in, in having a mutually gratifying marriage. At a certain point, it became less successful or less what they wanted, and they decided to end it in a successful way. It, it's disheartening to hear marital therapists using these socially constructed words to describe something that I think harms people. You know, so imagine you know you have been divorced and you're already feeling shamed about it and you're already feeling bad and worthless. And people say that your the only word that we have for your divorce is failure or your family is now broken. It's a very destructive set of words that we apply to people. And to some extent, I think it's purposeful in our culture. There are definitely people who judge people who get divorced and judge step families and blended families as, as lesser forms of families. And these are extremely judgmental, harmful attitudes. But I would say the vast majority of people don't have that point of view and are adopting it because it's the dominant socially constructed language and are just giving into it. And I don't hear anyone talking the way I do. I, I you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know if anyone, I haven't heard anyone anywhere talk about this. Maybe I should Google it. And again, maybe I'm the one crank on the hill that's screaming about nothing and meaning and, and saying a bunch of, you know, nonsense, but I don't know. Oh my God, so many rants, so little time. Um, well, at least I'm on page four of my notes out of six. Okay. Oh, another little interesting fact. She said that she keeps a special place in her notes, in her process notes, for the secrets that each person tells her so that she can keep track of what are quote-unquote secrets and what are not. So I thought that was interesting. Another um, well-known fact in the recovering from infidelity community that she mentioned is that the unfaithful partner often wants to uh, reveal the unfaithfulness and then move on very quickly. They want to have one session where they apologize and they cry together and then they feel elated that they've come out of the closet and the truth is out and you know, they say they end the relationship with the affair partner and they just want to move on. They say, okay, good. Now we can move forward with, with our relationship. Well, what really happens 
is that the hurt partner now begins their journey. They didn't know about the affair, and now they are at the very beginning of their journey to recovery. And she gave a, a good guideline that it takes, in general, if things go well, a year and a half for couples to recover from infidelity. And that this needs to be told to the unfaithful partner because they will have unrealistic expectations about how long it takes to recover. And I completely agree with that statement. I have found that to be true many times with my couples that have recovered from infidelity. The unfaithful partner sometimes has a difficult time with empathy to begin with, which is what led to the infidelity to begin with. But once they actually tell the person, they have a hard time containing the emotions that go along with recovery, and they just want it to go away. You know, they'll say, I said, I'm sorry. What more do you want from me? Or when are you going to stop obsessing on this? I'm not having an affair anymore. You know, why are you so paranoid? And the fact is, is it is extremely normal and almost universal for hurt partners to become paranoid, to become a little, to become a little crazy, so to speak, to be hurt forever, to go through a difficult phase of sexuality, to have very low self-esteem for a long time. And this is one of the things that statistics show that unfaithful partners underestimate in a drastic manner. That un people, when they become unfaithful, they don't realize the amount of emotional fallout that it will produce. That you know, they'll they'll ask couples after recovering from infidelity, you know, what didn't what will happen that you didn't expect? And they will say almost universally, I had no idea how much pain my partner would feel as a result of me cheating on them. I I knew they would be hurt, but I didn't know they'd be hurt that much. And this is something that we need to get out there in the culture because I think a lot of people they enter into affairs without being properly told about the risk that they're taking. Uh, you know, every everyone knows that when you cheat your on your partner, your partner if they find out will be hurt by that. But again, the degree of the hurt is what they don't understand. And I think if people understood that, that would be a big reason not to do it. I think people take the risk they're like, well, I'll cheat, my partner won't find out. But, you know, if they do, you know, she'll get over it or he'll get over it. But the fact is, is yeah, they might, but only after years of therapy, you know. And if you really drove that home with someone before they had an affair, I think a lot of people would think twice. Holy crap, this, this podcast is going on very, very long. This might be the longest podcast of all time. I don't know how I feel about it. Let me know if uh, this is too long because it probably is. Okay, but here I go making it longer. One thing I often get irked by, and it's something that Dr. Spring did not do much of, if at all, but one thing I often get irked by is when people blame the hurt partner for the affair. For instance, you know, someone will say, yeah, well, did you hear that Jane is cheating on her husband? And they'll say, oh, well, what, what's her husband doing that is making her want to cheat? Her husband must be a jerk or her husband must not be listening to her enough or something like this. And although one could imagine there being a possible factor in the wife's decision to cheat, I find it abhorrent to blame the victim for what someone is doing on purpose. When you have someone that is purposely having an affair, they are making choices 
to deceive. They are making choices, many, many choices. You know, believe me, when you get down to the nitty gritty with people and you review all the different choices and the whys in the road that the, the cheater was faced with, you realize that there are hundreds, if not thousands of choices that these people make in order to even have the first sexual contact with the affair person. And when you have an affair that lasts a month, two months, two years, you know, 20 years, you have millions of little decisions that are made in order for the affair to take place. And each one of those decisions was a decision to deceive, a decision to harm. And this should not be taken lightly. Now, as therapists, we don't shame people and we don't harm people with our therapy and we don't chastise. And, but uh, we definitely should not be blaming the hurt partner for the unfaithful partners decisions so just a another little rant that i have about it so i started thinking at the training uh, about the reasons why i think people will be unfaithful to their partners and in my experience the and it's according to my theoretical orientation which in this case is employing a certain brand of psychodynamic or interpersonal theory that I like to adhere to. But essentially, my theory is that when we grow up, we internalize various different relational experiences. And if we internalize, for instance, a lot of rejection, a lot of distance, you know, for instance, you have a young boy, five years old, reaches out to his parents for attention and love, and his parents reject that child in a in a uh, consistent manner, then that child internalizes that experience. And what they internalize is that they are not worthy of attention, that they are not lovable, and they become internally frustrated with that. They aren't likely to manifest that very in a in a very overt way, but but it becomes a part of their personality. And then they grow up and they fall in love and they develop a intimate relationship with someone. And over time, the vulnerability of a long-term relationship starts to scare him. And it starts to engage that internalized representation that they have, that they internalized when they were young. And as a way of defending against the pain that vulnerability is associated with, and in order to defend against the internal strife of having a part of him that feels unworthy and having another part of him that wants to distance himself from people. In, in, in an effort to do that, he will have impulses to cheat, impulses to distance from his partner. And in so doing, if he has an affair, will recreate the original rejection that he felt as a child. So originally, his parents rejected him as he reached out to them for love and attention. And in his adult life, he recreates this dynamic by making his spouse into himself as a child and by identifying with his parents who were rejecting. Ironically, what ends up happening is once the affair is discovered, his spouse now becomes the rejecting other and he becomes the rejected. And so the paradigm of rejection is now in full swing and he can revel in recreating the original difficulty. There are many reasons why people do this. One is to try to work out 
an old difficulty. So if you have a problem that was not resolved in your childhood and you were unsuccessful, so to speak, in being able to resolve it, you might recreate it in your adult life in an unconscious way to try to finally resolve it. And some people manage to do that. And when they do, they get satisfaction. But some people don't and will do so in a way that makes it almost impossible to actually work it out. So people will recreate this rejection dynamic in their adult life, and affairs are a part of that. There are other different colors to this of internalized issues, like you can internalize abuse, meaning that your parents might have been abusive to you, and you might internalize that. You might recreate that through affairs with your spouse. You might internalize secret keeping. You might internalize your parents keeping secrets from you or from each other. And through that pain and that discomfort, you suppress it and it emerges as an adult as you begin to keep a lot of secrets with your spouse. And it feels unconsciously satisfying for some reason to have a life that is secretive. There are people that I've treated that have this issue. And it's very interesting to have someone that gets pleasure from secrets. They would never say that. They don't say, "Mm, I love secrets. Well, some of them actually do. But most of them will just have secrets and not know exactly why they have so many secrets. And again, it might be because of an internalized difficulty in life that had to do with secrets. Another way of putting it is to make your spouse feel the feelings that you are trying to deny in yourself. If you feel like you are a rejectable, unworthy person, then you want to defend yourself against that feeling and will make other people close to you feel that way as a way of defending yourself from feeling that way. Another reason why people would have affairs would be due to projective identification, which I'm basically talking about right now. Having an affair can also be a distraction from some other problem. If you're depressed or you have low self-esteem, then you might have an affair to distract yourself from that. Being depressed is a very painful experience. Having low self-esteem, feeling worthless, being suicidal, these can be very painful experiences. And when you are in a lot of pain, you will resort to various different solutions. And when those don't work, an affair might, because what affairs do is they're, they're very engaging. You have to keep secrets. You have to think about it a lot. You have to plan. Not only that, but you also feel the, the exhilaration and the attention and the way that the partner loves you in a way that only new partners love each other. This can be extremely distracting to a larger, more painful difficulty. So that's another reason why I can imagine and have seen why people will have affairs. People, people will sometimes have affairs as a passive aggression toward their spouse. They are upset at their spouse for something. Maybe they're shy and they feel unassertive and they don't feel like they have power in the relationship. And instead of addressing that in a healthy way, they will have an affair. Now, they wouldn't, now some people are explicit about it and will say, well, I'm having sex with his best friend because that'll show him. But most people aren't like that and they are only unconsciously acting out an aggression toward their spouse in a passive manner. So these are just a few 
of the reasons why I think people have affairs. In my view, it's rarely because of some of the reasons that people will say. People will say, well, I'm having the affair because we fell in love, or I'm having the affair because my partner is not satisfying to me anymore. To me, these rarely are what I find to be the core reasons why affairs take place. It's usually due to some of these other reasons. Because, for instance, if you were unsatisfied with your partner, wouldn't you merely break up with that partner and then start dating in a way that was in accordance with your values and in a way that was functional? Most people would say, yeah, that's what, that's what you do when, when you aren't getting along with your partner. You try to work on it, and if that doesn't work, then you consider ending that relationship in the best way possible. And then after that, you start dating. If you're having an affair because you're unhappy with your relationship, that is not a functional way of dealing with the situation. For most people would agree with that, right? To enter a life of deception and lies and potential pain is, is not the way most people would consider a healthy and mature way of approaching a problem. So why would someone approach an immature solution? To a problem? Well, because they have these unconscious needs. Now, having said all that, there are some people that are in marriages or relationships in which they are being abused and systematically kept down. They are intimidated and dominated by their partners. And in these situations, all bets are off. If someone cheats in a situation like that, I have a completely different view of that. I'm not saying it's the right thing to do, but when you are an abused spouse, and you have been beaten down emotionally, that is a very different situation. And your behavior, to some extent, can be understandable under circumstances like that. Now, it might, it might sound like I'm a judgmental, moralistic person. I'm not. With my clients, they will tell me that I give them the vibe that I am very accepting and caring and compassionate with them. But at the same time, I think that it's very important that we as therapists do not at least have some sense of what is right and what is wrong. If, if a client comes to you and says they plan on breaking into their neighbor's home and slapping them around and taking their car, not many therapists would say, oh, tell me more. What, what makes you want to do that? That's very interesting. Maybe that's because your father beat you around. I think that makes sense. Most people would not say that. They would say, most therapists would say, that is not moral behavior. You should not do that. There is no justifiable reason for that. Well, I think to some extent, to a lesser degree, the cheating behavior is the same thing. It's a harmful act. It's hurtful. Adults will enter into it knowing that they are harming their their partner, and therefore it should be treated with a similar tact that we don't shame people and say, how dare you? There's something wrong with you. But we also don't ask questions like, how does this match up with your values? And other, and other questions might be, how do you think your spouse is going to feel when they find out, if they find out? What if your spouse finds out about the affair? How do you think they will feel about it? Is that okay with you? And if not, what do you plan to do? I think these are important questions. And without these questions, I think we're being irresponsible. I'm having a hard time with some of these words, like calling some therapists irresponsible for not pressuring clients to you know, think about their own morality. Uh, I don't like talking like this. It, 
It doesn't sit well with me. I think I might have to reflect upon it more. But at this point, this is how I feel. And I think this paradigm, this idea, this understanding manifested with compassion can be very helpful and effective with people. Uh, Another thing that she recommended, which I actually recommend to people too, is sex dates. Uh, She referred to them as sex dates. I referred to them as like scheduling sex or something. But basically the idea goes that if you're in a long-term relationship, say you're in a marriage, you have young children, and you, if you wait for sex to happen the way it did when you were first dating, you will never have sex. If you wait for those magical moments where you're at a candlelit dinner or, or whatever, people don't have candlelit dinners anymore, but um, there's probably an app on your iPhone for that, you know, candlelit dinner app. Anyway, if you wait for those moments that sex just emerges in order to have sex, you will never have sex. And so when she was talking about it, I was saying, amen, sister, I completely agree. It feels very un- unromantic to people to make sex into a schedule. For instance, with couples that I find, you have to make a schedule. You say, okay, when can you have sex? All right, well, the kids are in bed at this time, but I'm usually too tired on these days, and on these days, you blah, blah, blah. Okay, on Friday afternoon, we're both at home, and the kids aren't you know, back from school yet. And it's, you know, I have a a little bit of a window there from two to two fifteen. That's when we're going to have sex. It seems so unromantic, but to me and to Dr. Spring, it is incredibly romantic and sexy in, in order to do that. You have to want to have sex with each other. You have to be dedicated. You have to put effort and there's nothing more sexy than that, in my opinion, and in Dr. Spring's opinion. And so without scheduling sex dates and without actually having sex, what ends up happening is marriages slowly dwindle and their their power slowly goes out. Their, their, the light bulb slowly burns out. These are all really bad metaphors that I'm trying to come up with. But at any rate, you know, the, the magic goes away. Without sex, without physical contact, without cuddling, without naked skin touching, the reasons why people stay together end up diminishing. It has an inherent bonding effect. It has a way of putting things in perspective when you have sex with each other. It has a way of alleviating any little hurts you may have accumulated over the week. It feels good. It shows the other person that you care enough to to do it and to put effort into it. There's a lot of benefit from it. It affects your brain. It releases certain chemicals that we know about that will enhance a lot of positive relationship things. And so you need to be having sex. In my view, uh, I think most married Americans are deprived of the sex that they should be having. And many are not having sex at all. I see couples frequently that come to me telling me that they haven't had sex in months or years. And I find this to be a tragedy. And I wonder how they have stayed together for so long without having that. And I'm not just talking about sex. I'm talking about all kinds of intimacy. Because sex is usually just one manifestation of a greater intimate life. So if they tell me they haven't had sex, in all likelihood, they also haven't cuddled. They also haven't showered together. They also haven't been naked in front of each other. And these are all important things for a couple. And how beautiful and how wonderful it can be and is for couples when it's working well. So 
I agreed with her about the sex dates thing. She was, Dr. Spring was extremely brave in that she talked about her own personal life with infidelity. I won't go into the details because you really just need to read her books or read, see her in person and hear her speak because it's, it's quite a powerful story that she has to tell and has so much to do with what she is an expert in and has so much to do with the books that she's written. But one of the things that she said that I will talk about is that she said that often in our culture we talk about how we need to forgive when we are harmed. And forgiveness helps us move on. And holding on to anger only hurts us. It hurts our psychology. It hurts our physiology to hold on to that anger and to not forgive. But she said that she didn't believe that it was healthy to forgive before you want to, to forgive. And she also said that it's to some extent, she didn't use this words, but she didn't use this word, but I'm thinking she was saying that it's unjust to forgive someone who doesn't deserve it. If the person that hurt you did, does not meaningfully and sufficiently and comprehensively apologize for their behavior, then they don't deserve your forgiveness. And it's not healthy to force yourself to forgive. And so she talked for a while about that. And she has a whole book on that, I think, called How to Forgive. What's it called? The, whole, the book is called How Can I Forgive You? And her other book called After the Affair. But her book, Life with Pop, which is her conversations with her, or her the lessons she learned from her father, who was elderly, also has a whole bit in there about forgiveness for infidelity. She also talked about her technique of having a funeral for the affair partner. So when she's working with a couple and they want to recover from the infidelity, she will have what she calls a funeral for the affair, in which the unfaithful partner will end the relationship with the affair partner by writing a letter that is very well thought out and goes through a number of drafts, and the hurt partner participates in the writing of this letter. And the letter says something to the effect of, I'm, I'm writing this letter as a formal ending to our relationship. So again, the unfaithful partner is writing to the affair partner and, or the, the affair person, I should say. I'm writing this, this letter as a formal ending to our relationship. I love my, my spouse very much. We are in therapy to rebuild our relationship. I will never contact you again, and I will never receive communication from you again, and I wish you well. So she says that a letter along these lines with perhaps much more detail in there is written by the couple and given to the affair person. She says that it's a healing opportunity for the couple, and it's also a way for the couple to draw a boundary with the affair person, that without this boundary, it's hard to recover. And I agree with this. And I think that her technique here is sound. She mentioned a number of reasons why affairs happens, uh, why affairs happen. And I won't go into them because I'm way over time. I think this is a record for the longest episode, by the way. Um, but one of the reasons that she mentioned that I have seen in the research and completely agree with is alcohol use. When people drink their chances of cheating on their spouses skyrockets. You know, our frontal lobes are supposed to help us with managing our behavior, planning for the future, thinking about the future, editing our behavior, managing our impulses. And when we drink alcohol, that function 
diminishes and we end up acting on, on impulse. We end up forgetting a future even exists. We end up doing things that we would not do normally. If you want to increase the risk of cheating, then start drinking a lot. If you are out with an ex that you think there's a, you know, a very small chance that you'll get together with when you are in a committed relationship. So you're in a committed relationship and your ex calls you up and says, hey, let's go out. And you think, yeah, what's the harm in that? And you drink alcohol, then your chance of getting getting together with that person increases dramatically. And I think this is a fairly obvious point, but one that doesn't get talked about very much. Uh, the idea is, is that if you didn't, if you, if you went out with your ex, say you're in a committed relationship, you go out with your ex, you want to meet up, you want to socialize with your ex and you didn't drink alcohol. Again, the chance of cheating, if you're on the fence goes way down. So if you want to plan for your life and you are thinking, Hmm, I don't want to cheat. There's a part of me that wants to cheat, but the bigger part of me does not want to cheat. Then I am not going to drink alcohol tonight because that might impair my judgment. That, that It's an important point because for a lot of people, drinking is the only way that they socialize. For a lot of not only Americans, but people around the world, they when they socialize, they'll drink. Drinking leads to a lot of affairs. And once you have that one affair moment, say you get drunk and you make decisions that are impaired, but you make decisions to end up getting together with uh, your ex, well, now the cat's out of the bag. And for a lot of people, they think, well, I've already cheated. What's another, what's another time? I've already had sex with him. What's, what's sex twice with him? You know, if, if I get caught, it's not like if I did it twice, it's that much worse than if I did it once. So I might as well do it again. And so, you know, I've heard people say things like that. And so it's a slippery slope and it's a decision that um, you can make early if you decide to not drink before entering into a risky situation. So in conclusion, I will say that the presentation given by Janice Abram Spring was great. I learned a lot. It was very interesting. And again, the most interesting and powerful moment was when she were, was talking about her own personal experiences. I thought that was incredibly brave and moving. She, at the end, showed a clip from the movie Hope Springs, which is a movie that I've reviewed on this podcast and really liked. And it was, you know, a nice touch at the end of the presentation. But anyway, I thought it went really well. And um, I recommend her books and her trainings highly. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. And please take care of yourself. And boy, that was long, wasn't it? And let me know what you think. Go to psychologyinseattle.com and click on the support us page and donate or send us an email always wonderful to hear from our listeners. I always wonder what you think as I'm talking. I'm like, man, is this interesting at all? Or am I even making sense? What are people thinking as they're listening? So it'd be great if you could send me a quick email, even if it's just, you know, a couple words like, hey, cool, (laughs) something like that. Anyway. All right. Check you later. Bye. (music) 